Well, we're going to talk today uh, about uh, God, and I'll get to him in a minute. But before we do, uh, I want to tell a story about somebody named Jane Jacobs. And Jane Jacobs is one of the most important uh, city urban planner writers in the 20th century. And she was not educated in this. I think she was an English literature major. And she grew up and lived in New York City. And one of the things that Jane Jacobs did is she challenged some of the city planning issues that were happening in New York. There was another guy who was very famous. Uh, his name was Robert Moses. And he was... He does, okay, he obviously, yeah, the steel mill guy over here doesn't like him. And uh, he's the villain of this story. And Robert Moses wanted to put a highway through Greenwich Village. And her and her friends got together and said, no, don't do that. And it was a lot of her uh, advocacy and her writing about how cities operate and how they work together and how people work together in cities and how their plan actually affects how cities, uh, uh, whether they're successful or not. And as you know, uh, the city of New York is built around foot traffic and trains versus the city of Los Angeles, which is built around the autonomy of the automobile, right? It's very different here. And so we're very spread out there, very compact. And so she had a lot of interesting things to say. And then she was uneducated in this, but she just knew from her time living in New York how cities should operate. So she wrote a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and it became so important. Uh, oh, I have a picture. Uh, you should read this. Um, it became so important that urban planners going into their field of study now in colleges have to read her book. And so she is a hero of mine, at least. So when I did my doctoral work at Fuller, um, uh, as my daughter would say, I am a doctor, but I just can't help anybody. So uh, I did my doctoral work on churches and cities. Uh, we actually include, I included this in my final project because it was so important to see uh, how see the world in cities th through the lenses of how the way she sees the world. And in this book, she tells this really weird story, and it's very difficult uh, to hear because um, basically it's the story of the Harlem projects that were built. And there was a bunch of uh, social workers that went in, and they found that the homes... The apartments, the buildings were in disrepair, crime was rampant, and the citizens, the tenants did not care for the building. They didn't care about it. And so when social workers pressed them and said, why don't you care? Like, why don't you care about this? They said something interesting. They said, the planners and the architects who built this building did not have in mind the things of, of the people. They didn't take into consideration the way our, the social fabric works in this community. And we actually don't like it. They destroyed our neighborhood. See, the thing is, is those planners came in and gave the people what they thought was best, but really it was not best for the people. And there's this quote in the book, uh, I'm going to read it to you, and it, it's this, it's um, from Death and Life of Great American Cities, it says, there's a, even, there's a quality even meaner than outright ugliness or disorder, and this meaner quality is the dishonest mask of pretend order, achieved by ignoring or suppressing the real order that is the struggle to exist and to be served. Um, I always have to hate it when I have to explain a quote because it's so whatever, but really what is she saying here? She's saying that these people that built these housing projects, they thought they knew what was best for the people, but it destroyed that community. 
And Jacob's understood that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, especially when it comes to cities. And so as you and I read this quote, or as we think about the work that she did, uh, really challenging the status quo at the time for city planners, uh, we have to consider our intentions too. When it comes to caring for people in our city, we may have all the best intentions in the world, but sometimes, even if we think our intentions are good, our intentions might actually hurt people. We might actually be doing more harm than good. And this is where it gets really complicated in a city as complex as Los Angeles. There's a lot of people with a lot of opinions. You have opinions, and I have opinions, but how do we know that our opinions are right and good for the people that we're trying to serve and help? That's really hard. Just because we believe that it's some, there's something good for our city, we think that there's something good for our neighbors, is it really? And so I want to explore today, what does it mean for Jesus followers to be good neighbors? How can we avoid the meanness of architectural planners like back in the day, uh, the thing that Jane Jacobs challenged? And how can we think about our city in a way that matters, that we, where we actually love people in the way they need to be loved? Well, the good thing is, is there's uh, scriptures that can support uh, this idea, and um, it happens in the life of Jesus, the life and times of Jesus. Jesus is hanging out, doing his thing, and there is a law expert that comes up to him, and he's like, Jesus, I got a quick question for you, and this is that story. In Luke 10, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So the expert in, the, in this story, he could have come to Jesus for any number of reasons. We're not actually sure. We can't read into his intentions. We weren't there in front of him. But like, Jesus, he might have been asking, Jesus, how smart are you? We're going to test and see how smart you are. Or he might have been asking Jesus, you know, what is my standing with God? How do I know if I'm doing a good job? And then he might have just been simply asking God what's most important. What are the priorities? What the priorities should be for my life? And in the story, this law expert, he answers with the two most important things. He says that we should love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job. Got it. You got it. Good job. Thumbs up. But, the, but this is not the end of the story. In verse 29, this is what it says. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this is an interesting question. Because you're like, yeah, love your neighbor, but really, Jesus, let's be reasonable here. Who is my neighbor, actually? Like, is it actually? Who is, like, who qualifies? I need to know the limits of my love for other people. Who's really my neighbors? The people who live around me? Uh, like, what are their names? <laughs> uh, what are the names of the people who live around me? Is it just, you know, God, is it, you know, or Jesus, is it those annoying parents at the school pick up and drop off? Uh, the insufferable Santa Monican with all of their uh, things? It, God, Jesus, is that my neighbor? Uh, is it the people, Jesus, that have the shopping carts outside of the place where they're supposed to be in my neighborhood? Is that my neighbor? Is that included in all of this? Is it my ex? Is my neighbor my ex? Is my ex my neighbor? 
Uh, is it the annoying person that is so woke? Nikki, I can't, you know, uh, I just can't. Is it the like, you know, like they're really, they just know a lot more than you about everything. And um, in their, their political views and spiritual views and their cultural views are superior because they're so stinging. Is that my neighbor? Is that who you're calling me to love? Be reasonable. Jesus, look at me when I'm talking to you. Be reasonable. So Jesus replies, and he tells a story. He says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And he stripped him off his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He took, on his he took him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's money, uh, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look, at it. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, Jesus takes the whole system and he blows it up. He just destroys it. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Your sworn enemy. Now, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They are enemies. Like if you passed through a, a Samaritan town, they might kill you. And they were not friends. And e the, even the expert of the law was so like disgusted by Samaritans in this story. Look at, in the end, he goes, he goes, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan man. It's the one who had mercy on him. I just don't like this. So Jesus blows it up. He makes the Samaritan the unlikely hero of the story because these people didn't get along. And so, yes, we're invited to love everybody, to have compassion for people who are even our enemies. So if the far outer rim is enemies, how much more are we supposed to love everyone else in between? Now, I'm not perfect at this, uh, neither are you. Uh, just ask my wife, I'm not perfect at loving her in our own marriage. By the way, we celebrated 17 years uh, yesterday. Uh, part of that was, and part of that was spent in an emergency room uh, because she slammed her finger in a door. And, uh, and when I came to her rescue, I was so loving and compassionate that, uh, no, I'm, it was not, I didn't, and so even in that moment, I was like, oh, come on, it's our anniversary, we're supposed to be having fun. I was mad, I was mad, right? So there's ways that I have to grow, even with the people I love the most, right? So if we're supposed to, uh, like, pay for the medical expenses of our enemies, how much more are we supposed to love and care for the people around us? And, like, but here's the key to this. Um, I think it's the key. And it's the key to how we think and, and uh, love people in our city. How can you love your enemy? How can you actually have love for people that you don't have love for? Well, Jesus, in his life, he demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. And so anybody who wants to encounter true love can do so by welcoming the person of Jesus into their life. 
You say, Jesus, I turn to you. I look to you. I believe that you've done everything necessary to make things right between yourself and the world by loving us and dying in our place. And when we move in that direction or when we invite God to come into our lives in a way that's real, a supernatural way, he does. I believe that God is alive and real today. He hasn't stopped talking. He hasn't developed cosmic laryngitis. He is alive and well today, and he is speaking to us now. And part of the way you can have love for the people who are your enemies and everyone else closer to you is for you to first encounter the love of the living God. And when you and I have encountered the love of God, we have something to give away. I think it's nearly impossible for us to love our enemies and love the people that we say we love the most in our lives uh, without first encountering God's love. That way we have something to give away. And God's love is just nearly impossible to share unless we first experience that. I do want to pause here that some of you might feel a little bankrupt when it comes to loving people. Like you see them on the street, you see people at work, your neighbors, you don't like them. We've got, we've got great and weird neighbors. Like we've got the whole mix. Like you, see, like you feel bankrupt in terms of your ability to love and care for them. Might I suggest that you don't have the ability to do it. You don't have it. You're actually not that good. You're not that good at it. But the way you get better is that you invite the love of God to fill you up so you have something to give away. Does that make sense? So what you would do, want to do in this moment is you would want to invite God. You say, God, I, I want you to fill me with your love. I want to experience your love. And maybe he would say things to you by, through other people or through the power of a spirit, through prayer. He might tell you that you're loved. He might have you, uh, he might bring healing to a wound that you've experienced by a mean word or something that was done or said to you when you were younger. He can bring the love that you need into your life. And when you have that, you are perfectly positioned to love and care for the people in your city. So what does it mean for you and me, for this church, and for the people that will eventually come into this church, what does it mean for us to love God and love our neighbor? Well, it brings up a couple important questions. What is love? And who is my neighbor? Or who is my neighbor? Yeah. Now, what is love? In this particular situation, the Samaritan did what was obvious. The Levite and the priest did not do what was obvious. Uh, so he got off his donkey and he like helped bind up the wounds and he put them in an inn and he paid for his expenses. That was the obvious thing to do. Just as the Samaritan did the literal things that were right in front of him, so too do we do the obvious things that are right in front of us. Now, we're not going to get this right all the time. If you get it right all the time, I would love to hear about how you get it right all the time. But you won't. But you're going to try to just have your eyes open. You say, God, open my eyes to do what's obvious for the people in my city. When, if, how many of you live in a, a building that is, has shared walls and space? How many of you? Uh, or, or are you all single-family home dwellers? Yeah, cool. Uh, Cool, I'd love to meet you too, um, uh, for different reasons. Uh, and like, so like you're in the building and you probably have trash cans out in the back, like the big ones like we do in Santa Monica, you might have those, right? So like when someone's carrying difficult trash and they need help, what, what would the obvious thing be to do? It would be to be, love your neighbors, give them a hand with the trash. Uh, you know, sometimes it's more than that. Uh, I remember a few years back in our neighborhood, where we lived before, 
uh, there was this man, he was chasing down his girlfriend. He was so mad. And he was going to beat her up in the corner. And I stepped in and saved the day. And I was like, hey, don't do that. And, it's like, and I put my coffee down and ran, a, like sprinted across the street. I'm like, hey, don't do that. And this other woman came and said, sir, don't do this. I don't know what the fight was, but they, he saw it. He saw where it was going. We separated the fight. So sometimes it's breaking up fights and... Uh, and it's helping people with the trash. It's those things. It's obvious. You, obvi- you do what's obvious. Please don't hit each other right now. Don't do that. Stop it. The, you do what's obvious. So I went back and picked up my coffee, and there was two moms there. You know, the, you know, the yoga pants, the hair up. They're talking at 9.30, nowhere to be, uh, kind of hanging out, drinking coffee. You know, I mean, work starts in the morning, I think. Um, and um, I, I was jealous. That's what I'm saying. I was jealous. And... Uh, <laughs> Like, where, where, where are you going? I'm going to work. Where are you going? I was going to work. I was going to work, but I want to get a coffee so I could do a good job. Yeah, you have more feedback. That would be great. And so, uh, so I'm like, so I go back, and these moms are like, so, so what happened over there? I'm like, I just broke up a fight. And they're like, that was really courageous. I'm like, thank you. But I got to get going to work. So, I mean, it can be that. I remember my friend Corey, some of you have met him. He was in town another time where, I'll tell you another story where I look really good uh, and did it, did it right. I was, uh, we were here and uh, we were going to the store to buy something and uh, we're going down 23rd and 23rd in, down into Wilshire has like a little bit of a hill. Uh, this is right where like the Whole Foods is caddy from uh, the Trader, the new Trader Joe's, uh, which we love. Um, so we're, we're going down the street and all of a sudden this lady gets out of her car and like 16 LaCroix are rolling down, rolling down the thing. And we're like, oh, we got to help. Why? Because we're doing what's obvious. We're doing what's obvious. So we get there, we're grabbing all the LaCroix. We picked them. She's like, thank you so much. And she goes, would you like one? And I go, sorry, I only drink Topo Chico. And, uh, and I turned her down. Anyway, perhaps you're, on, perhaps you're on call. You're helping your neighbor who's having a medical emergency. Uh, or, and, and like I said before, maybe it's just being there and being the listening ear. We do what's obvious for the people around us. Sometimes we're like, Lord, give me a sign of a way to love people in my city. It's there. The sign is there. It's going to happen to you as soon as you go to your car. And it's going to happen to you all this week. You don't have to look very far. You are perfectly positioned by God's grace and some kind of cosmic order uh, to be exactly where you are, to love the people who are right around you. Do what's obvious. The second thing is... uh, uh, of, of, is, is listening and that's understanding who is my neighbor remember I told that story a few minutes ago about Jane Jacobs what Jane Jacobs was arguing for was that people who the architects needed to love and care for their city by listening to the people who live there and part of your job is not just to do what's obvious but it's to listen you and I have to listen we have to understand In some ways, like, we have to contextualize what Jesus means to us, to the outside world, and the way to contextualize it, a way for people to understand what we're doing and why we would sit here on a Sunday morning, is to first begin by listening. And there's so much that I can personally learn from listening to other people. And listening and studying experts and understanding what's happening in our cities is another layer to contextualization that we have to understand. 
So what is the modern city telling us? Now, uh, like I said before, in my doctoral work, I got a chance to study some of the stuff and some of the experts in this. And I want to share a few things that as we've begun to listen to the city, what's happening? What are the trends? These are things that you're going to have to think about if you believe that God wants to love the city, that you're going to have to pay attention to. So are you ready? I'm going to share these and then we'll, we'll wrap up our time. But um, just like, and, and the reason we're doing this is just kind of like the book. You ever see, read the book, The Five Love Languages? You know this? Where it's like, you know, I'm words of affirmation or whatever. or you know, what, So in the same way, you're going to want to learn to speak the love language of the city, which is, means you have to listen. So, um, so here we go. So here's, what you, here's, here's the, the basis, though. The world is urbanizing. The world is moving towards cities. In fact, did you know, fun fact, five million people move to cities in the developing world every month. Five million a month move to cities every month. Our cities in the United States are continuing to uh, grow or the, the metropolitan footprint continues to grow. Now, I know there's a lot of press during the pandemic. People were like, I'm leaving New York. Uh, but where did they relocate to? They relocated to places like Miami and uh, Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach and um, where, uh, all the old, uh, <laughs> all the, uh, the gated communities with the old people fighting about the HOA, like my parents. And, <laughs> uh, and people, in the, I'm leaving LA, the taxes are high, and this and that and the other. But where do they relocate? Do they relocate to places like Austin or Houston or like some city in Wyoming? But cities are not going away. Cities are growing. There's too many advantages to cities. And so if you think, and now you've chosen to live in Los Angeles, so you get this. You and I both get this. If you think you're going to escape urbanization, or the city growing in the future, you're mistaken. Now, there's always something that could happen that could change culture and the way we think about cities, we can move away. But cities have been with us since forever, and they will continue to be with us. And as a neighbor and a follower of Jesus, you are in a collision course with urbanization. And if you are seeking the peace and the prosperity of your city, if you seek to love your neighbor as yourself, you will have to figure that out along with the growing urbanization of our city. And so a few areas. Number one, and this is huge. The first, as cities continue to expand, more poor people will continue to move to cities. So what you're experiencing, if you live in Santa Monica, you've seen the homeless issues, the unhoused issues. If you go around, you see the shopping cart people or the people on the street that seem a little like off, that's not going to go away. In fact, that's going to continue to grow. And there's an economist in uh, Harvard, his name is Ed Glazer. He wrote this amazing book, it's called The Triumph of the City. If you like reading nonfiction books from economists in Harvard, uh, they're experts on cities, you should read Triumph of the City. Uh, so uh, it was great, I love it. Top, top five books last uh, 10 years for me. Um, it was amazing. And so uh, in his research, he makes this interesting point about cities that, uh, that cities don't actually make people poor. Cities attract the poor. And why do they attract the poor? Because less advantaged people have more opportunities in cities than they do in the countryside. And we've seen this uh, especially in Mexico, in certain parts of Mexico, but it's more so in the United States. There's more advantages to living in the urban environment. There's just more opportunities for people. So in essence, the less advantaged move to cities, that is a sign of the city's strength, not a city's weakness. The challenge for Christians 
is to figure out what we are going to do to help the urban poor. They're not going away. They're going to be continuing to come in, and you don't want them to go away. We want to serve them. We want to help them the best we can. This is why at Pack City Impact, this is why we're focusing on places like Harvest Home and a few others here in the neighborhood where we can actually care for the poor the best that we can and build partnerships because that's going to continue to be a thing. So if you think you're escaping urbanization, you're not, you will continue to see a rise of the issues that you're seeing. You're just going to see more of it. It's not going away. Uh, number two, the future of cities is connected to harder work environments. What does that mean? When you work in a city, you're going to work longer hours, there's going to be more competition, and there's going to be more pressure on you uh, in the sense that, like, there's going to be moral and ethical ambiguities that you're going to have to address. So most research finds that city dwellers should expect to work harder and longer uh, because, uh, be, just because there's competition. There's more competition in the city, and so you have to work longer and harder to keep your job. And basically, those who live in cities need to welcome greater competition for their jobs, and that's just because it's just a byproduct of, of that uh, competitive market. Also, um, you know, in, in our city, uh, there's going to be, uh, there's more competition, let me put it this way, there's more competition for work, and so that can lead people to make moral and ethical choices that are not good. Now, in our city, our main export is entertainment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, okay, entertainment. And people work long and hard for those entertainment jobs, right? It's tough. But you know where I'm going on the moral and ethical competition stuff? Do I need to say his name? The name that shall not be named? And everything that came along with the Me Too movement? There is so much competition to become whatever people want to become through this industry. And it, the city's packed with people. There is one just like you right next to you, living next to you. And, there, and we will replace you. It puts pressure in particular on certain people, on women, and it can very, be very harmful. And that's not going to go away. You think because a few people got, you know, put on trial and found guilty, you think that's going to go away? You think the human nature of manipulation and manipulating people in a competitive market is going to go away in Los Angeles? You think, you think, you think you just we're all going to be, well, you know, well, we did the Me Too thing, you know, check. That's what people want to do. Yeah, we check the box, but no one's going to. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to have an effect on the city. Wherever there's people, there will be competition, and where there's competition, someone's willing to do the thing that you're not willing to do, okay? And so as Christians, we're going to have to figure out to how to balance the pressure of the city. You are not a human doing. You're a human being. And there needs to be limits to how much you work, even if that means that you don't get what you think you're going to get. Don't live under the slavery of anxiety that you have to put in more hours that are beyond your physical, spiritual, mental health. You can't do that. You have to live 
within the confines of what you can do and be successful at it. One of the best ways you can protest this is to develop a Sabbath. A Sabbath is when you take one day out of your week and you don't work. And you commit. It's one of the most uh, challenging things. What do you do? You don't work? No, we don't. We do whatever. You know, we go shopping. We sit around. We play in the pool. We pray. Whatever you want to do. Uh, but you take time to not work. And that was designed by God to remind us that we are not human doings. We're human beings. And we get to trust that God's going to provide for us on the other six days. I would, I would also set limits, set non-negotiables for you and follow those. And if, as you honor yourself, uh, that will have a translating effect to the people who are around you. If you're running around being overly competitive and not taking care of yourself, your testimony is not good. People aren't going to believe you. They're not going to want to see your faith. Your faith doesn't even help you. Like you, don't, you have to have it work for you before it will work for others. Am I, am I making it clear? And then also, we're going to have to recognize the pressure uh, that leads to moral and ethical ambiguities. Um, we're going to have to be there for people. And we're going to have to choose to say no to certain things. Between now and the end of your life, if you live in Los Angeles and you stay here for a while, you will be challenged in this area. And you have a choice. And when you make the right choice in that morally ambiguous moment, you are showing to the outside world that you have a faith in a God and it doesn't, you don't need to cut those corners, that you trust that God will provide for you, that God will open the door, that God will make a way. And your testimony that Jesus has risen from the dead is so much more powerful if you say no to those things. And we need people in cities who are willing to do it a little different, who are willing to say no. Um, a great way to do this is to not do it alone. This is why we believe in something called um, Pack City Community. And this is why we have community groups that are launching in the fall. I'm doing like a men's group and like a deep dive Bible study. I'm doing two. I'm so excited. Uh, uh, and uh, we have a women's group, and we have a co-ed group, and we're going to continue to expand those. And when you're in those groups, you're around other Christians that help sharpen you and help keep you accountable, not in like the negative sense, but like, hey, how are you doing? I want to encourage you. And you can not do the Christian life alone. You can do it together with other people, and you're formed by a group of people, a tribe that help you become the best version of yourself because you are going to be formed by something. You're going to be formed by your friends, you're going to be formed by your boss, or you can be formed by other Christians in community. So I encourage you, get in a group starting this fall. Uh, a couple more areas, let's get out of here. Uh, area three, the future of cities will be affected by population growth of consumers. What do I mean by this? There's a term called the consumer city. Now the old way of thinking is you had a city center, and you drove into that city center for work and then you drove out to the suburbs, if you could, right? And some people, some of the urban folks had to live in the city. Um, that's not the case anymore. More and more people are moving to cities based on the consumer goods, services, and quality of life. And then in a lot of ways, you're finding people moving to city centers and they're doing a reverse commute out to places like the suburbs for their work. So it's kind of flipped. The consumer city is on the rise. More and more people are going to be in Los Angeles because they like the weather, 
because they like going to nice restaurants, because they like to be around the scene, whatever their scene is, and they're going to want to be a part of that. And um, so what does that mean? It generally attracts wealthy people. Wealthy, more and more wealthy people, not just the poor. The poor are coming here for opportunities, but wealthy people are coming to consume the city. They're going to eat and drink and invest and do all the things in the city that enable the lifestyle that they prefer. And so the cities of the future, including Los Angeles, are not going to be just filled with the poor. They're going to be filled with the rich, the up and outers. And so as Christians, we're going to have to think about not just how to reach the down and outers, but the up and outers. We're going to have to figure out how to talk with them and connect with them and build a relationship with them and understand them. A really interesting way to do this is to start exploring the things that interest you. Uh, and as you explore the arts or, the, or sports or whatever it is that interests you in the city, that opens you up to be connecting with people and understand people that are here to consume the city. The other thing you can do is you can read and learn. There's this thing called uh, Ruby's Hidden Rules of the Classes. And it's like this nice chart, and you can find it. And it teaches you ways to understand how the poor, the middle class, and the rich think about uh, how they think about the world. Everything from food to, uh, to sports to relationships to money. And different groups think about it differently. And like, for instance, when it comes to food, among the poor working class, the main question for food is, did you get enough to eat? Right? That makes sense. Scarcity. Uh, in the middle class, the question is, was it a good value? Did you get your money's worth? You, you know what I mean? You're, I mean uh, I'm just figuring out who's middle class right now. All right. Yeah, it's everybody. Uh, it, it, like, did, it, it was a good value, right? You know, whatever. Uh, for the wealth class, it was how was it presented and what was the aesthetic of the room? It's very different. So, uh, so there's different ways of thinking about things. And so if you want your faith to make sense to the urban poor, you're going to have to learn to speak the language of the urban poor. If your faith, if you want your, what you believe God has done in your life to make sense to the wealthy, then you're going to have to talk in ways that make sense to the wealthy. So Ruby's Hidden Rules of the Classes, everything from humor uh, to, you know, and so on. But anyway, um, let's move on. Area number four, and this one's hard. The future of cities will likely become more homogenous and segregated. Bill Bishop, he's a social scientist, sociologist, and his research is really painful. Because he says there is growing segregation in the United States, the United States, not driven just by migration alone. And he wrote a book called The Big Sort. And basically, people are sorting themselves into ideological enclaves. So more and more, when you go to urban Seattle, you will find people that think a certain way, pray a certain way or don't pray a certain way, vote a certain way, spend money a certain way, uh, and, and overall everything. So... Uh, their beliefs, their values, their tastes become uh, more of a homogenous tribe. So what that means is, for example, Santa Monica, you will have racial and ethnic diversity on some level, but there will be a homogeneity that's going to occur in terms of how people vote, how people worship, how people spend their money. 
This is happening across the United States. There is uh, homogeneous uh, segregation happening and, um, and everything from economics uh, to sexuality. So uh, let me put it this way. As Christians, we're going to have to think about election years, what we're going to be, because every four years, uh, depending on what part of what city you're in, you will be either really excited or you'll be really devastated. Why is that? Because there's going to be more uh, homogeneity in your particular area. So more people are going to be either angry or really jubilant as a result of elections. The people of God have got to figure out how to be different. Like our life does not rise and fall based on who's elected. Our life rises with Jesus forever. That is the goal. And the kingdom of God is coming and establishing itself here and now. And we get to participate on that. Kings will come and go. Governments will come and go. Presidents will come and go. Elected senators from our state will come and go. But there is one that we can lean into that will never go away. That's the person of Jesus. So we have to think about how we're going to be during elections. Now, you can get swept away, and you can post all the worst things, uh, and you can contribute to that, but I wouldn't. I would not do that. Um, we also need to be aware that there's going to be more groupthink uh, when it comes to certain ideas, positions, etc. And the pressure to conform is going to continue to grow in this city. So, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up in a city like, like our daughter, there's like a lot of, you're like, okay, there's a lot of diversity and you don't really have to conform to anything. Nikki and I were talking about this. We grew up in suburbs and we were like, there's a lot of pressure to conform, to be fit in. But when you're in a city that's so complex and diverse, uh, you don't really, there's nothing, to conform to what, Marin might say. Conform to what? There's so many different types of people here. There's so much diversity. But here's the thing regionally, regionally, there's a conformation that happens. And what do I mean by this? We've been in Los Angeles seven years. I don't realize how LA I have become till I go visit people in the Midwest. I go, oh, oh, oh. You mean we don't spend that much at dinner? <laughs> or, <laughs> or, oh, we don't talk about that way? Oh, this isn't about me telling a long story? Okay. Uh, and you bring your child, if you bring your West LA, Santa Monica child to the Midwest, then it really starts to show, right? So the, the micro-conformation with other kids at her elementary school might not be happening, but she is conforming to the homogeneity that's actually taking place uh, regionally. Okay, so when you take her and you're there and she's like, oh, I could die for some fresh sushi. That, that's like a, and she was like, I just don't, I just, those are words that I just never said when I was seven, eight years old. Like, we need fresh sushi now. Uh, and like, you're like, okay, well, we, we can give for you because, you know, we're pushovers and, uh, and uh, we don't want to affect you. Um, so there's going to be, so what am I saying? There, there's just going to be growing homogeneity. And you may feel like you're at war with other parts of the country. And it's going to even become even more homogeneous based on, like, your neighborhood and so on. So you're going to have to think about that as a Christian. And what is the antidote to this kind of conformity? What is the antidote to monoculturalism? And what is the antidote to segregated homogeneity? I believe... 
it's this. Uh, don't look around the room at the thousands of people that are here. But the gathered church on Sunday who come under one name, the name of Jesus, man, that's amazing. That, this is a place that has diversity. This is a place that uh, is a protest to the homogeneity that's starting to take place where you can sit next to someone or be in relationship with someone who you really have no business outside of this room being in relationship with or being in friendship with. That God is building something because of his love and his leadership for you to be in relationship with people who are different than you, that you can learn from, that you can grow from, that you can serve. It's not just about you. You can actually, when you show up and you ask someone how they're doing or you're there for them in a very hard moment, that's what the gathered church is. That's what it does. And it is the antidote to some of the homogeneity and some of the problems that we're seeing. So when you're here, you are a sign. You are a witness. You are a foretaste of the coming kingdom. That Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign. And in the Bible we read about cities in the future. That there, we people will live in cities. And they will live in cities that are diverse. That are in relationship with each other. People are in relationship with each other. And it won't look like some of the problems. So what I'm encouraging us to do is understand your city. Listen to your city. Understand the trends. And love your neighbor as yourself. Why don't we all stand?